0: Hey, good morning, everybody. We're continuing our series on anger. We have a really good class today. I learned a lot while I was preparing this class. I think it's a real juicy one. And uh, I think all of you will benefit greatly from this class. Just to review quickly, just um, a couple of ideas about anger that is very important for us to realize is that anger is a signal. It's not a tool. And it's an emotion that discovers a problem, like all of our emotions. Whenever we're feeling a certain emotion, a strong emotion, it's telling us that there's something that needs to be changed. There's something that needs to be fixed. And anger, more so than any other emotion, is actually the inner teacher. It's teaching us about ourselves and what needs to be addressed. So either something has to be fixed within me or in my environment. So last week at the end of the class, we were beginning to speak about uh, Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, and in that book he discusses ways of self-regulating, and this is the key to this class, is the idea of self-regulation. And basically, there's two ways to self-regulate. There's the physiological way, because we talked a lot last week about how anger is really a primal instinct. It's the fight or flight that we go into, literally, when we feel danger. We said that the blood from our brain rushes into our arms and our legs. That's what's happening physiologically. And so we're ready to run like, you know, run as fast as we ever did, or engage in some kind of fight. And we really feel that same kind of distress. It's exactly the same feelings that we get in our body when we've been ignored, when we've been slighted, when people aren't doing what we ask them to, when things aren't perfect the way we wanted them to be, and all the other reasons why we get angry. Um, And and so we have all this energy and emotion, and of course, our brain isn't working properly, and we go into this place of cruelty, as the rabbis explain, and really into a a sort of animalistic um, state of wanting to attack. And that's why anger is so upsetting and disturbing to us after we've been there. We say, you know, was that really me? How could I have said that? How could I have acted like that? That wasn't me. So let's talk a little bit more about physiologically what a person can do when they're in this angry state. So there's all kinds of breathing techniques, right? Taking deep breaths, relaxing yourself through your breath I did a Jewish meditation class actually last night with Hashi Skobak, which was really 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 nice anybody who's interested I can send you the link the email you can email her um, it, there's no charge and um, it's really it's at the end of the day at eight o'clock at night on Tuesdays and it's um I found it really relaxing. It was just wonderful. Anyway, but that's probably one of the things that a person needs to do is to get totally in touch with their breathing very quickly, which of course, the more you practice breathing techniques and meditation, the more aware you are of the ability of your breath to calm you down. The other thing we said was distracting yourself, right? that Doing something that takes you away from that anger, that takes you away from that uh, situation that you're embroiled in going for a walk. You know, we said that if the doorbell rings all of a sudden, even that calms you down because you go, you're doing something else. And when you come back to the fight, you know, it's like, okay, where were we? What are we, where were we up to? What was I, you know, who was yelling at who here, right? But just that interruption makes a difference. You don't go back into it with the same pitch, with the same intensity, You might be still very angry in your head, but physiologically you've had some time to settle down. Okay, so this is recommended also by Susan Heitler. She's a world-class psychologist. She wrote a book called The Power of Two. And a lot of what we're gonna talk about today is her um, ideas of conflict resolution. So she says that you stop the cycle of anger, even by doing something else for a few seconds, you'll be less angry when you come back to the argument. And John Gottman, who we spoke about, who's a marriage expert, I think I've said this in other classes, but he once did a study to evaluate the level of marital satisfaction. And his um, thesis was, or what his hypothesis was, is that the more perpetual issues that you have in your marriage, the less marital satisfaction you will probably have. But what he discovered was something far different. What he discovered was that there was no correlation between the number of perpetual issues and happiness. But what really defined a happy marriage was not the issues themselves, but the communication style around the issues that determined the level of happiness. The couples who were happier knew how to de-escalate. They they knew how to discuss these eshu- issues, or to um, you know be able to, I guess, accept them. Whatever it was, but the point is, is that there was not a correlation between having a lot of perpetual issues and and not, and and um, less happiness. It really was based on communication skills, the ability to de-escalate. Sarah Hannah-Rackliffe told me recently that there's an expression, I don't know, she says it's a bit really in vogue now, that when something happens that you didn't mean to do and you want to, de- you want to cut through a potential, um, you know, escalation of anger or even just the beginnings of a fight, you just can say something like, my bad my bad okay i thought have you heard this before marlene yes you have marlene's waving her head so for example let's go back to the 20 dollars on the table right so you know if i had known this technique right maybe you know i could have said my bad like meaning yeah i left the 20 dollars on the table why should i expect you to take it off it was my responsibility to get rid of it right um so by saying something like that, oh, my bad. Oh, you left the lights on. My bad. Oh, you, you did this. You know, whatever it is that our partner, whoever's in our life, gets annoyed by. And it's like a perpetual issue. So you can just cut right through the chase and, and stop it in its tracks by saying that sentence. So give it a try see so you see how you do with that. Because it takes the air out of the balloon. That's the idea. You're taking the hot air out of the balloon. Okay. Another way they say is to distract the person who's angry. Oh, boy, it looks like you're getting hot. Can I get you a drink? I don't know. I feel like somebody'd want to kill me if I said that. But, you know, supposedly you could try, oh, can I open the window? Oh, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Or trying to make a joke, right? And they're okay. Well, you know, it depends how, how angry they are, I think. But maybe if you get to them really quickly when you just see that it's starting. Uh You know, you see that you're starting up and you tell yourself your own favorite joke, um you know, maybe you can cut through it, but we know how difficult it is this is i'm not trying to to pretend this is easy when we are in our animalistic primal you know um, store small- I've tried that, and it works oh. if you have the patience Renee honey, down. can you mute you, yourself, Renee? yeah, I just wanted to say something. oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. to say that it really does work if you have if you have the strength to stop the you know the intensification yourself yeah. that if you do that it really does work I've tried okay. it okay <laughs> that's good to hear so these uh people know what they're talking about I guess you've tried it and, and you've you've seen it work okay Renee says it works try it um okay um of course if it's really a major fight it says here, it's gonna need more than that. But even sometimes a tiny little deviation, right? Oh, you know what? Oh, that's so, just distracting the person. Oh, let me open the window, it's really hot in here. Oh, one second, I just have to, uh, whatever it is, but obviously it has to be before the fight is really on its way. Okay, now Sarah Hunter Radcliffe suggests that when we're angry, we, we try to regulate ourselves. And while we're doing this for ourselves, we can teach other people around us how to self-regulate. Because self-regulation, Daniel Goleman says, is the greatest gift you can give yourself and others. And it's at the core of, like we said, EQ. Somebody who has high emotional quotient is somebody who knows how to regulate themselves emotionally. So this is what she suggests, you name the emotion and you say it out loud, I'm really upset, I'm really frustrated, I'm really annoyed, I'm irritated. We don't say instead, you're making me angry because then obviously you're blaming somebody. And you're not even supposed to say, I am angry because anger has a connotation of being totally out of control. But you can say, I'm getting irritated. I'm getting annoyed and frustrated. I'm feeling stifled. I actually tried this yesterday, and I have to tell you, ladies, whoa, it was incredible. I just, I mean, I just saw myself getting overwhelmed, overloaded. As we said, a lot of women, the reason that we get angry is because we feel overwhelmed and overloaded. I had my grandchildren over. Don't worry, they all had COVID tests, okay? Um, and whatever they were, I wanted, they, I, I, you know, I, I was get, setting them up for painting. And you can imagine they're at that age where they ask like 25 times while you're setting things up, well, even the paintbrushes, I want to paint, where's the paint? Anyway, I couldn't find the paintbrushes anywhere. I was going nuts. I finally gave them some straws, which they were very upset about. What are they supposed to do with paint and straws? I don't know. But I taught two classes yesterday. I probably was hungry. I was overwhelmed. I was teaching. And I, you know, I just said to my, I, as I was going, my daughter was there and I just kept saying, finally I started saying, wow, I'm really overwhelmed. I'm really, uh, I'm really, uh, it's, this is too much for me. I really, I really can't do this anymore. And I just left. I said, I'm gonna have to leave. You're gonna have to take over. I don't know where the brushes are and and you know what she didn't really want her kids to paint because they get dirty and this and that so i realized afterwards boy this was not a win-win for her either and then i left her with all the kids with no paint brushes and paint squirted out already all over the place so she was also like scratching her head probably wondering what's up with mom okay but need paint brushes at the dollar store i have to put that on my list um anyway I said, you know, you can go borrow paintbrushes from the neighbor. Not the usual thing you borrow from a paint from the neighbors. But um, anyway, I was really proud of myself, though. And I went upstairs and I just chilled. And my oldest granddaughter came up and she said, are you okay, Bubby? And I said, yeah, you know what? I just needed to take a break. I needed it was sensory overload. And I know about myself that when there's a lot of people and I'm getting overwhelmed, It's sensory overload. I wish I had known this a long time ago, but to be able to say, you know what, I have to leave. It's too much for me. And to allow the others around you to hear it. You are teaching them not only that you are regulating yourself, but the gift of self-regulation. So, you know, it can sound like this. I think I'm gonna take a drink now. I think I'm gonna walk out of the room. I think I need space. I think I'll put on some music and dance because I'm really feeling overwhelmed or uptight. Or I'm gonna sit down and breathe slowly. I'm gonna turn off this adrenaline. The same adrenaline that we get when we have a panic attack. I'm gonna breathe in slowly to the count of four and breathe out to the count of eight. I'm gonna turn off the adrenaline that's running through my body and restore my brain. Okay, so this is the kind of self-talk that you can do when you want to physiologically regulate yourself. Because remember, your body's going through major stuff when you're getting angry. And so if you can talk to yourself and recognize at the time what's going on, it helps you to calm down, even that alone, to be aware it's helping you move from the regesh, like we said, from that place of emotion, the overwhelming place of emotion, to a place of seha, right? Because you're bringing it up to, hmm, I wonder why I'm feeling like this. Maybe I need something. Maybe I need space. Maybe I need a drink. Maybe I need to leave the room, Right? Now we can do this with all kinds of emotions, with sadness, with anxiety, but anger obviously is one of the big ones that really overwhelms us and comes sometimes very suddenly. So we have to be ready for, okay? All right. So we're going to continue with this idea. We're going to talk about, again, self-regulation is the biggest gift that you can give to your children and you can give to yourself because It means not being at the mercy of your emotions. So here's some more ideas that Daniel Goleman lists in his book of self-regulatory skills. So number one is chocolate. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people use food to self-regulate, right? And of course... Once in a blue moon, that's okay, you know, getting yourself a piece of chocolate to make yourself happier or to reward yourself for not having gotten as angry as you usually get. Right? But he says, obviously, there's a danger with food because as much as it can work, it's not a great thing because we create patterns of becoming emotional eaters, right? Whenever we're feeling a certain feeling, we run to go and get something, comfort food. So once in a while, obviously, and within small dosages, chocolate is great or whatever it is that you like, but just uh, be careful because of that connection between, you know, emotional and emotional eating. Okay, obviously exercise. We all know that exercise is very helpful. It releases chemicals in the body. It's not always convenient when you're in the middle of the fight to say, excuse me, I have to go run on the treadmill. I'll be back in five minutes, you know, or start doing jumping jacks in the middle of the fight, you know. Um, But the idea is that, you know, if you can get away, exercise is really good at calming yourself down physiologically, and getting good feelings inside of you and getting rid of all of this major stress that your body is going through. This adrenaline, using that adrenaline, you know, to run 10 miles instead of uh, yell for 10 minutes at the person next to you. Okay, a massage or physical pressure, right? Maybe doing something to yourself to calm yourself down. A hot, a hot shower. Cleaning out a closet. <laughs> you got a lot of energy when you're angry. You can go and clean for Pesach, right? Get started. Yes. Use that wonderful energy for something positive. You get a mitzvah instead of an avera. <laughs> okay. Mastering a small project, Daniel Goleman recommends. You know, something something you keep procrastinating about. You don't need new blinds on the window. Wonder when Home Depot is going to open again. You know, whatever it is, make yourself a small project that keeps you um, self-regulated or you get to when you feel that you're anxious, sad, angry. Okay. Number seven is acts of kindness. Do something nice for somebody else when you're upset. You know, call a friend who needs a who needs a call, make a sympathy call, and finally, he has on his list prayer and meditation. Okay, what we spoke about a little bit at the beginning, right? Pick up your Tehillim, talk to God, tell Him how upset you are, ask Him to help you to calm down. You know. Recognize that he can help you get back your equilibrium. Okay, so when we see ourselves or a child getting into a bad mood, we want to teach ourselves and others how to get back into a good mood, how to alter my mood when I'm upset. So, you know, when our children are growing up, let's say you have a kid and the kid's crying for candy. I want it, I want it, I want it. So, a lot of times as mothers, we say, here, take it, because we just want them to, you know, stuff a sock in it, as they say, but you know, we just want them to stop. And you know, it's, it's like emergency mode very often. But of course, if we do this over and over and over again, what are we teaching our child? We're teaching our child that self-regulating has to do with getting what I want. In other words, yes, I can only regulate myself when you give me what I want. Now that's a terrible thing to be able to do, because what happens is we get into this mode sometimes of being the fix-it person. The mother becomes the fix-it man. You know, don't worry, I can fix that. You know, you need this, I can fix it. Don't cry, don't cry, don't get upset, I'm going to fix it for you. And what happens as a byproduct is the child learns that mommy can fix it, But unfortunately, he doesn't learn about the problems that can't be fixed. He doesn't, he isn't, um, he isn't, um, what's the word? He hasn't been given the tools to deal with things in life, which are many, many things that cannot be fixed. And especially today, we know, we know about all the helicopter mom and the snow shovel mom and the Mom who does things and makes sure that their kids never, ever, ever going to experience any kind of difficulty because, God forbid, it will hurt their self-esteem, you know, which is all backwards and bad thinking. But the society is, is obsessed with the idea that you can control everything. You can control your child's environment. You can make sure they get into the right class with the right teacher, with the right counselor at camp, with the food that they like, with, you know, whatever. We've talked about that in other classes. And because we are such control freaks, we don't allow our children to learn self-regulation. And we ourselves are victims of expecting things to go the way we want. Remember, I once heard that, you know, in the olden days, they expected things not to go the way they wanted. And if something did go the way they wanted, you know, like their village wasn't burned down this month, they were really happy about that. (laughs) But we are the opposite. We expect everything to be perfect. And if God forbid we push a button and it didn't work immediately, we're already going ballistic because our self-regulation skills are so poor. Okay, but a lot of it is because of what we're taught in childhood. People grow up at the mercy of their emotions because they finally hit the things in life that can't be fixed. Or even if they can be, they're not being fixed in the right way, the way they want them to. So they get in a bad mood. And there are people whose self-regulation is so bad that they'll be in a bad mood and they'll quit their job. They'll do, you know, extreme types of things because they're in the grip of these emotions. You know, they're angry at their boss. That's it. I'm quitting and they aren't able to think things through. We have an example of this in the Purim story that's coming up, right? Achashverosh gets drunk, he gets angry, and uh, Vashti refuses to come to the party, and he kills her, he has her killed. And the next morning the Megillah wakes up, uh, you know, the Megillah tells us that Achashverosh wakes up and he says, where's my beautiful wife? Where's Vashti? And, you know, they have to inform him, well, uh, King, you know, you, uh, you cut off her head last night. And, you know, he's extremely upset with himself, but he obviously, you know, had not read Daniel Goldman's book. And self-regulation, including the fact that he was a drunkard, was not part of his, you know, regular day. So, um, yeah. And that's what happens. People can do extreme things when they're at the mercy of the emo- of their emotions. Right now, I just read an article in LA. There is tons of suicide going on among high school kids. Obviously, life is not the way they wanted it to be. And the fact that they've canceled high schools there and, you know, in general, life has been canceled in so many ways for people. So... Obviously, the less ability you have to be in control of your emotions and to self-regulate, the more this kind of behavior is going to happen. So the best gift that we can give someone is, is the gift of teaching them how to calm down. How to put yourself in a better mood, even if you can't fix or change things. So there's a famous marriage counselor, a marital counselor expert, premarital counselor expert. Her name is Rosie Einhorn. She used to have a column in the Jewish press, I believe. And um, she had a, a saying that went like this, your emotional state at any given time is not an indication of the quality of the relationship. Now, she was dealing with people in the dating world, primarily, And basically, you know, if they'd have a terrible date or they'd come back to her and say, oh, this guy is like this or that, she'd always pause and have them consider the fact that maybe it wasn't the person, but maybe it has something to do with the emotional state that you were in when you went on the date or something that happened in your day that was behind the way you were feeling about the person. Now, it doesn't mean that... that it's never an indication of the quality of the relationship, right? It could be that obviously we have to trust our feelings. We're not supposed to deny them. Hopefully our feelings and our intuition are telling us something good. But in her experience being a premarital coach for many, many, many years, she made this statement that a lot of times people's emotional states cause them to end relationships that really had tremendous uh, opportunity, perhaps. Okay. People break off relationships because of this when really it's a matter of regulating yourself first. And then you can see much more clearly if the issue is the other person or perhaps it's my mood or situation today. And therefore people make a lot of mistakes when they're at the mercy of their emotions. So you want to teach people from a young age, when you get into a bad mood, hey, let's turn on some music. Hey, let's call grandma and cheer her up. Then the child grows up knowing what to do for themselves, right? They begin to understand that there's something they can do when they're feeling, you know, funky, not not themselves, wake up feeling sad, uh, wake up feeling angry and want to yell at everybody. You know, self-care and ways of getting out of it or being gentle and kind to yourself and realizing this is normal. This is a normal part of life. Sometimes, you know, we don't even know why. We don't even know why we're feeling the way we are. But self-regulating is very important. So um, Dina Schoonmaker gives an example that she once did it in front of her five-year-old son or something she was feeling. She thought she'd try it out this The Sarah thing about talking about how she's feeling. Wow, you know, I'm really feeling overwhelmed. I think I'm going to take a nap or I think I'm going to have myself a cup of tea and read a good book. Oh, yes, this is a good idea. So anyway, her son was watching her. Actually, he was seven years old. So she said one day he came home and she was just saying, you see that people really pick up on it when you do it out loud. Oh, I'm really feeling annoyed. You're really teaching them when you do it yourself. You don't have to say to them, listen to what I'm doing. You should do this too. You just do it. She said her son came home. They live in Israel. It was a school. It was, he's seven years old. It was a very snowy day in Jerusalem. And he saw that the bus driver, what a surprise, was getting very anxious. Okay, Israeli bus driver, right? Getting very nervous driving this bus on this snowy day, which snow is not the usual thing there. So he said to his mommy, and I was getting nervous, too, because he was so nervous, right? And and I think, I think uh, so So I started saying to myself, I'm getting nervous. I think I'm getting agitated. I don't think he used that word. I think I should sit down and breathe. This is what the seven-year-old kid says, okay? Well, he's on this bus. Then he says to his mom, I wanted to tell the driver to do the same thing. But, you know, <laughs> I was worried that he wouldn't like my... You know, advice. Anyway, but that's the point. We can teach so much by modeling self-regulation, right? That because other people will learn and apply it to our situa- their situation. You know, I, and I, I was thinking about my own mother, right? A lot of her self-regulation, I think, had to do with, you know, singing positive songs, you know, um, trying to accentuate the positive, you know, just making things lighter, And she was very good at every day, I think we saw her lying on the couch with a good book and a cup of tea. It didn't matter what was going on around her, but it was kind of like, this is my time. You know, and we usually be going, can I have a sip of your tea? Can I eat your lemon? You know, like it was like anything that you're, we want a piece of it, Ma, you know, whatever it was. But she sort of, and she'd sort of say, you know I'm lying down, I'm gonna read a good book now. And she just, you know, taught us that that's okay. You're allowed to do that. It's okay. Okay, another thing that maybe you guys are familiar with, I know Sarah Hannah really likes this technique. It's called EFT, which is em- emotional freedom technique. You can look it up online. I've looked it up a few times. It's, it's called meridian psychotherapy. And it's, the, it's like acupuncture, the idea that you have meridians in your body, different pressure points in your body. And so it's a, it's a technique for when you're angry or upset or anxious or feeling out of control. And basically what you do is you tap on certain points of your body, right? If you've ever done it before. And you, um, while you're doing it, you say what's making you upset oh, I really hated it when he said that to me. Oh my gosh, I can't believe he did that. Oh, you know, I'm feeling really upset, whatever. And the point is, is they've, uh, Dina Schoonmaker says she once went to a session of it and she was very cynical about it because she's not into like these breathing type of things and physiological type of things. She's more into the cognitive, which is what we're going to talk about next. And um, she, you know, but she figured I'll go and try it because it's non-invasive and it's not expensive. And she said that interestingly, a lot of people find it to be very effective in reducing intense emotions and the subjective units of distress, what they call suds, subjective units of distress. For example, let's say at the beginning, before doing this, this tapping, you were at a nine out of 10 in terms of feeling really, angry, really anxious, really sad, whatever emotion is gripping you, that after doing this, a lot of people reported that they went all the way down to a three. And it doesn't take long to do it. It takes about, I don't know, maybe five minutes. So look it up online and let me know if anybody tries it and if it works for you. Okay, we're now going to talk about cognitive skills. What can you do cognitively when you're in a place of anger? So this is the idea that the better we understand anger, the better we can use our intellect to help us. Because anger is often an expression of many different types of things. And there are different reasons that we use anger. There are different things that anger comes to accomplish. So this is based on Susan Heitler, who's a world expert on conflict resolution. And as I said, one of her books is called The Power of Two. And she asks the question, what is anger expressing and hiding? When you understand what the person is doing with their anger, it helps you to accept it. Not just in yourself, but in other people too. When you can pinpoint what it is, cognitively that got them going or yourself. So we have 11 different uh, reasons for why people use anger. Okay. And while we go through these, I want you to think about, obviously you will, because you're women, you'll say, Oh, that's me. Oh, Oh, that's me. Right. Um, of course, if this was a class on men, I'm not sure they would do that just naturally. So, um, <laughs> I don't have to tell you that—that's your homework. See who you are. Okay, so the first one is called coercion. Number one is coercion, and this is something we do, especially if you have a mo- if you're a mother which is this idea of, I'm not really angry at you. I just want to get you to do what needs to be done. Go clean up your room, right? Or you're in the car with somebody. No, go that way on the highway. No, take this route. It's shorter, right? And so you'll talk in a loud voice so that the person will say, okay, okay, all right, I'll clean up my room. Okay, all right, we'll we'll go that way. Right, I'll do what you say. So, with coercion, the idea is is that I have no issue with you. I just need you to do that. So, we know as mothers, from the moment we wake up in the morning till we go to sleep, we're just barking orders all day long, right? You know, get up, get your face washed, brush your teeth. Did you say, honey? Did you wash your hands? Okay, get downstairs. Where's your backpack? Tie up your shoes. Dip. You know, it's just endless. Then you start talking to your husband that way, too. And you have to sort of, you know, you have to sort of take a step back and go, wait a second. But, you know, we do this for so many years. It's really hard. We're just constantly sending out these directions. So that's coercion. Very simple. Number two, establishment of status. Or another subtitle of this is content, irrelevant fighting content, irrelevant fighting. So the idea here is, is I'm getting angry at you because I want you to know who is boss. Now we see this a lot among siblings. It's not specifically about the content. The content can be irrelevant. It's just about establishing status. I want you to know that I'm in charge. I'm the boss. So this happens a lot in Israel. I mean, Dina Schoonmaker lives there, but anybody who's ever been to an office in Israel or had to bring anything to the Misrat HaPanim or deal with Israeli bureaucracy in any way, we lived there for quite a while. So I'm sure that we had many cases of that. But she gives an example that, you know, you go into an Israeli government office, and as soon as you get in there, they start yelling and screaming at you that you didn't bring something that you were supposed to bring. Even though you called them before, you know, 20 times and supposedly they told you everything you needed, but you know, you get there and of course there's something else that you didn't bring that you needed. And they're really angry, blah, blah, blah. But she says that really a lot of times in Israel, the reason they're angry is that it's not really about that thing. It's about them establishing status. I want you to, I want to show you that I'm the boss. I need boss, right? Do you understand that I'm the boss? right, the clerk behind the counter, right, who's had a really hard day, I am the boss, you know, he gets no respect from his wife, he gets no respect from his children, like Rodney Dangerfield, right, but I want you to know I'm the boss, so she said that one of her students once told her a story how she had a child who had hurt her, sprained her arm or leg, and she had to take her to emergency, and uh, this was also in Israel, And this kid happened to be a real trooper, a really good kid. She wasn't crying. She wasn't complaining. She wasn't, I mean, she maybe cried at the beginning, but, you know, it was over with. She was really good. Anyway, they're sitting there waiting for the nurse and the doctor. And, you know, things are very high anxiety in the hospital. And one of the nurses says to her kid all of a sudden, oh, stop being such a baby. I guess when they were moving her leg around. And the mother, of course, was thinking, I don't know why are you yelling at my kid i mean she's an angel like she's been behaving so well she she's in so much pain and she isn't saying a thing anyway this mother had a lot of iq and she realized that this was about this second idea of establishing status so out loud she said to her daughter you know so that the nurse could hear you know honey these 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 this nurse is a professional you know, she really knows, she knows what she's doing, you know, she knows exactly what she's doing. So she saw that by saying this out loud, she was cal- she was she did this to calm the nurse down and everybody else who was very frenetic around them. And Dina Schoemaker was just saying this takes a lot of emotional intelligence to take out again, the recognition that the people are acting this way, because they're trying to establish I'm the boss, I'm important, I know, okay? So if you understand a person's anger is because they need status, and then you understand that the more you fight with them, the more difficult they'll become and the more unhelpful they'll become, okay? Now it takes a lot of insight to realize this person needs status, and we can calm them down by acknowledging how important they are. I remember we were once shopping in New York and this really stands out, but my father-in-law, uh, his neshama should have an aliyah, was a salesman. But as a personality, he was a very quiet man, but obviously his whole life he was hustling and uh, you know working with people. And we were once at Century 21 in New York and he was shopping with us. And I remember being so amazed. There was this, you know, large sales clerk who was uh, not very friendly and not interested in helping at all. And, you know, if you went up to her and said, could you tell me where the ladies dress section is? She'd just grunt or ignore you. Anyway, all of a sudden I saw him go up to her and he said to her, now you look like somebody who could really help me. Right? And oh my gosh, it looks like she was ready to kiss him. Okay. He, she was ready to do anything for him. And I said to myself, wow, I never saw this side of my father-in-law. So charming, you know, like whatever. And she was running around the whole store. Yes. Belts. Sure. I could find you belts. Oh yes. Yes. Anyway, people who have this ability, right. To recognize, they just want to establish status. They just need that. So if you give the person the status ahead of time, you can introduce the Rafua before the maka, right? The, the cure is already there. The way to um, stop the fight from happening is by already giving the person the status that they need, okay? Another example she says is a certain child who's always picking on a smaller kid, right? The, the kid in the family who's picking on the, the kid who's younger. So we might wanna give that child status right? Oh, you're going to help me decide what's for dinner tonight. Oh, you're going to help me plan your brother's birthday party. So when we can give an older child that feeling of status, sometimes it can lessen the way that they're interacting with their younger siblings. Okay, number three, anger as a cover for anxiety. So this is very common with men, but for anybody but I'll tell you why it's more common with men. Because some people are more comfortable expressing anger than expressing that they're nervous or they're fearful. So a lot of times when we're really feeling fear, we'll express anger because we're afraid to show our fear. Now, of course, men are taught to be strong And not to be afraid of anything. And real men don't cry. And real men can handle difficult situations. So a lot of times their anger and their yelling and their shouting is really hiding anxiety and fear. And also it can be very cultural. They feel it's inappropriate to express their fear. So she gives an example of a man who's in the hospital. And, you know, he's obviously very nervous about his... uh, physical situation and instead of you know he he starts yelling and screaming at everybody around him you know the nurses the doctors anybody who comes into his room but it's really coming from anxiety and fear she says you know on the on the other in the you know some people become very weepy and shaky when they're afraid right but other people will become very angry. And the anger is just hiding fear. And she gives an example, you know, like in Eretz Yisrael, right? Where they have, unfortunately, many times in their history of living there, right? You grow up with the hearing sirens and having to run into bomb shelters. So, you know, she said, you can imagine like a father yelling at the kid like crazy to get into the bomb shelter. Now, obviously, they're yelling and screaming, but they're not really angry. They're really anxious. They're really fearful. And they cover it up with anger. So again, sometimes that anger is hiding fear. And it's important to know that. If you want to, you know. Okay, number four, anger as a retaliation or a counterattack. This, we're told, is more common among women. Okay, so these are people who don't normally get angry. We're talking about, remember our list of number one was the person who's angry all the time. Number two is the person who gets angry, but then they calm down quickly. Number three and four were basically people who don't get angry often. Either they hold it in or they get angry, but not that often. So... People, so this anger is a retaliation or counterattack are people who say, listen, I I wouldn't have gotten angry, but if you're going to get angry at me, then I'm going to get angry back at you. And basically, they mirror how they're being treated. And, And these are people who are more sensitive. There are types of people who are very sensitive, who mirror and swallow up other people's energies. So, These are people who have a tendency to soak up your energy and then reflect it back to you. When you're happy, they're feeling happy. When you're sad, they feel sad. When you're angry, they're going to get angry back because they reflect back again, whatever you are feeling and the way they react. The counterattack is how they react to anger. And she says, even if they're not necessarily an angry person, so she gives an example of her own child who's that type of kid who soaks up other people's emotions. They'll cry when somebody else is crying. If, they, if, if, you know, if somebody tells you a sad story, you'll start having tears coming down your eyes, right? But she says anger will come out in the same way even though you're not an angry person or the kid isn't an angry kid. If all of a sudden you get angry at them, they just mirror back what you're doing and they'll get angry back at you okay number five fear of humiliation very common among women yeah this is a big one i don't know about for you but i i think this is a, a huge one okay we make a mistake if we make a mistake we have this fear of being shamed or blamed or criticized for the mistake that we made. And so we get angry as a result for the mistake that we made. Okay, we're really feeling humiliated, whether it's our own self voice talk that's telling us you did something wrong, you're stupid, you're so forgetful, you're an idiot, whatever the negative self talk is. And we get angry as a result of the mistake that we made. So imagine the scenario your husband asked you to pick up the dry cleaning and you forgot. You walk into the house and he, he nicely asks, without any agenda or any emotion, Did you get the dry cleaning? And of course, you respond because you realize you forgot. You say, what do you you expect me to do that for you for? I I got enough to do in my day, you know? Like, you should do it yourself. Don't rely on me. Why do you ask me even? I'm so overwhelmed. I have enough to do in my life. Okay? And so they weren't attacking you when they asked the question. They were just asking you an innocent question. But you attack them because you forgot to do the thing. And they end up getting attacked because you forgot to do what you were supposed to do or what you said you would do, okay? Now, this is very common among people who grow up in critical homes and are used to being criticized when they make a mistake. There's almost a behavioral, Pavlonian way that we make this connection, right? We, we messed up on something, we didn't do something, we forgot something, something wasn't the way the other person necessarily wanted it to be, but you know, it's not a big deal. And it's almost like Pavlov's dogs. As soon as we feel criticized, blamed or shamed, we feel humiliated. We feel like somebody caught us, right? You associate the mistake with humiliation. You don't even wait for the humiliation. The person didn't say, what are you, I mean, I just told you, do you have no brain? You just, we just spoke and you said you're going to pick up the dry cleaning. Okay. You don't even wait for the humiliation before you attack. Oh no, I made a mistake and they're about to humiliate me. Okay. That's the connection in your mind. And they're not even intending to humiliate you. The other person's completely in shock. Why are you getting angry at me? I would, I just asked you if you brought back the dry cleaning. What are you What are you getting so upset about? I didn't do anything. I just asked you where my socks are. You know, <laughs> whatever. Okay. And but you associate the mistake with humiliation, and you actually skip the stage of humil- humiliation and just get angry by saying, how dare you ask me that? It's as if you're saying, how dare you ask me that, right? You caught me. So she says with something like this, you really have to look into the history of the person is the reason why I run to humiliation and anger is it's a way of deflecting the criticism because I'm used to being, or is it because actually sometimes in marriages or friendships or whatever, it's because I'm already so used to being criticized by this particular person that I just naturally go into this mode if I'm caught doing something that was incomplete or not the way I promised it to be? Or is it that in general, I'm, I'm, I grew up being criticized all the time? Okay, so again, three reasons why we might do this. One is, do I jump to start yelling at the other person when they say, did you pick up the laundry because I, I, I use anger to deflect the humiliation I'm feeling? Is it because this other person criticizes me a lot and so right away I have to defend myself? Or is it that in general, I'm used to being criticized as a kid Is this a person that immediately yells at me when I do something wrong? Do they do this because I criticize them so often? Do I evoke this anger in the person because they're so scared to make a mistake? Okay, so sometimes when we react this way, it's because we have a very critical partner. Or we've had a very critical background, right? So... If I'm always being criticized, I'm obviously going to get angry right away when I'm caught doing something wrong. So, and, and it's the other person who evokes this anger in me because I'm so scared to make a mistake. Or like I said, maybe they have a history of being criticized and that's why they get angry before anybody even says anything to them about the mistake. You know, the person, the, the, the husband who's standing there says, why are you yelling at me? Because you forgot the dry cleaning, right? They're completely bewildered. I don't understand. I just asked you a simple question. Why are you yelling at me? Because you forgot the dry cleaning. She tells a story about a woman who was married, who grew up very critically with a very critical home. And she had a very insightful husband who recognized that this is what his wife was doing. You know, what are you getting angry at me when you forgot the dry cleaning? And he said to her once, and she said it just completely made her shift. It like healed her. He said, don't worry. Here you will not be criticized for your mistakes. You are allowed to make mistakes. I'm not going to give you a hard time. She said, he helped me reprogram myself about being criticized for mistakes. So the question is, do you react this way? You know, sometimes it's a perfectionistic tendency and it's not about humiliation, but it can be from a perfectionist tendency that we worry about mistakes. Am I so critical of this person? Or it's sometimes we're, we're causing it in other people that they blow up at us all the time because we are so critical. Of them, generally. So as soon as they see that they've messed up in some way, they're going to start yelling, because they're just expecting the humiliation that is always heaped upon them for making any kind of mistake. Okay, so we're going to stop here with number six, we're going to go on with number six. I hope this has been helpful. I find this very, very interesting. And there's many more that are um, very, very interesting about why people get angry.